By the time the evening arrived on April 5, 2010 in Montcole, West Virginia, the Upper Big Branch mine explosion was worldwide news. Breaking news in America's coal mining country. We now know today's deadly mine explosion in West Virginia has claimed the lives of at least seven workers, and that number could rise substantially. The blast happened Monday afternoon at Massey Energy Company's sprawling Upper Big Branch Mine. Massey Energy owned the mine in Montcalm, West Virginia. A dangerous rescue effort to save them continues. It's going to be a very long, slow process. I want to offer my deepest condolences to the friends and the families, fathers, and the husbands and brothers, nephews and sons who were killed in this accident. The House Committee had plenty of questions about conditions at the mine leading up to that massive explosion. It was the nation's worst coal mining disaster in 40 years. I'm J.D. Belcher and this is UBB, a coal miner's story, dedicated to those affected by the tragedy of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster. Chapter 1, Part 2, The Tragedy It's 5.30 p.m. at the Marfork Safety Building. The families gather to await any updates for the ongoing rescue mission. Seven miners have been ruled deceased by David Hodges with the help of a few inexperienced first responders and a makeshift crew of UBB coal miners, but the families do not know this yet. Kim Lane is anxiously seated with her loved ones in the dull, fluorescent lighting. Hopeful to hear good news about her husband, Richard Lane, production foreman, father, and grandfather, who is still inside the mine. Set my whole family, we sat down there from Monday night till Friday. That week, my family would drive me back and forth because I just couldn't. I just was not strong enough emotionally or physically to sit down there. My son stayed. David stayed. Rick's best friend, John Richmond, stayed. They were all down there. There was chaos. I can just remember chaos. But the family would drive me back and forth from the mines, the training center to home so I could rest. I never rested. It was not a resting week. And I will say this much. At the time, Governor Manchin's office, his staff and the girls, everybody that was there that was associated with him, they were amazing. In the days following the violent explosion, I spent all day and every day for five days waiting to find out with the families if their loved ones were alive or dead. Those families and I stayed together at midnight and at dawn through moments of hope and despair on pins and needles in the early days and in shared grief when the full scope of the devastation hit us. They called me two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, whatever updated I needed. If they knew something was coming, they would call me and say, Kim, Bring, have somebody bring you down. Come on, it's time to come back. They would keep me in the loop while I'm home, taking a shower, trying to rest, seeing the baby, trying to take care of so much here. But I honestly can tell you, there were so many people at the house over there, my son's friends, daughter-in-law's friends, my friends, they all came and helped take care of the baby, take care of the farm, take care of the house, cooked for everybody. Everything was done. I can't tell you how many people there were, but they all rallied and took care of everything. It's just the way of life around here. When something tragic happens, people rally, they take care of each other. I didn't know it was a complete explosion. They didn't tell me everything. And maybe they didn't to just protect me. But I had hope that since Rick hadn't been found, that there was hope he could be found alive. 
the waiting game was is what was just is brutal. David Hodges, now having pronounced seven coal miners deceased at the Ellis portal, tries to gather his thoughts. We're that alpha complex. We solve problems. We if there's a problem thrown at us, we fix that. And we just couldn't. We we couldn't do nothing. We was waiting on someone to bring us something. Anxiety. We're we're, we're amped up. We're wanting to make a difference. And then you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. So many of the first responders was asking, why are we not getting the data out? Why are we not getting the data out? And that was just such a common thing. Well, because we're in we're in a rescue operation, as upsetting as it is, we don't want to focus on removing a deceased person when we know that there may be a, a salvageable victim in there. What were the details then? Did you all know kind of it was bad or did you kind of know potentially how bad it was. At that particular time, didn't really have any details as far as how bad it was. Here is Bill Tucker again for the West Virginia Office of Miners Health Safety and Training. He was the inspector at large for the Southern Region. The rescue team for the office was actually all at Chief Logan State Park at the time. So when they heard about the explosion, they all just loaded up and left directly from there straight to Mont Cole. Where the mine rescue team was all together, that enabled them. They didn't have to come from different areas throughout the state because the state mine rescue teams work in the different regions throughout the state. So they were all together, which really helped them get there a lot faster. When I got there, I went to the Ellis portal first. At that time, that's where the state mine rescue truck was at. And that's where the one crew, they had them outside by that time that was on the man trip coming out. They decided that all the mine rescue guys needed to go to the other portal at the main portal at Upper Big Branch there at Montcole. And we left there and went up there, set up our truck, got our apparatuses ready and uh, started going underground. Now, an apparatus in which he's speaking about here is worn by the mine rescue teams to allow them to work in poisonous environments. They provide four hours of oxygen. And when you're in an atmosphere that's irrespirable, then you go under air. You don your apparatus. What a lot of people don't realize, when you first go underground, everybody assumes you have some type of a respirator, you're under air a rebreather or something. But when you go into the mines like that, you don't know how long you're gonna be there. Your focus is on finding survivors. Of course, there was smoke and things to deal with, but sometimes the guys underground don't put it on maybe quite as soon as they should, but their focus is preserving their air so that they can look longer for survivors. I started having breathing problems after UBB. Prior to that, I had none. I considered myself to have been in very good shape. Played a lot of softball, traveled a lot, played in tournaments and stuff. In June, well, people actually brought to my attention about my wheezing, and I started noticing breathing problems. The first time I really noticed it, I was coming from the back of the yard, which my backyard is elevated. I got about halfway up, you know, from the back of the house to the front, and I'm I'm very short of breath. 
working on the investigation, be in a room together, and people be on the other side of the room, they'd say, man, you're wheezing bad today. Some of my coworkers who were also mine rescue members that was on my investigative team, they were having issues. So I ended up going to West Virginia University to the lung specialist up there. They done extensive testing, CT scans, bronchoscopies. And according to Ruby Memorial, my breathing problem is what I breathed at Upper Big Branch. <clears throat> my employer, <clears throat> the West Virginia Office of Miners Health, Safety, and Training, they contested my workers' comp. They hired a very reputable attorney's office, Steptoe and Johnson, to represent them to fight my case. So when they did that, once they contested it, Brick Street cut off my benefits. But I continued going to the doctor because my condition was worsening. I did not know what was going on. I've never had breathing problems. So I was turning it in on my insurance for while I was fighting my employer on my workers' comp. So that they sent me to their doctors in Pittsburgh. Their doctors did a lot of tests on me, and they agreed with West Virginia University that my breathing was caused by Upper Big Branch, what I breathed there. So eventually, once Steptoe Johnson's doctors agreed with West Virginia University that that was my problem, it ended up going to the final stage through workers' comp, and I ended up winning my case. And so I do get my medical paid for, uh, which I'm on three inhalers in appeal. But they put in the agreement I can never file for additional disability. So, but my main concern all along was was my medical because I didn't know where this was going to end. Well, in December of 2018, West Virginia University sent me to Cleveland Clinic. They said the doctor down there, Dr. Gilday, they felt like was one of the best in the world. They referred to him as the lung plumber, but he tried to put stents in my lungs and he said it would collapse around them. He tried a balloon procedure where they actually tried to stretch your airways and they would collapse as soon as he'd take it out. And he said eventually that I'd be looking at a lung transplant. But as long as my saturation stayed good, naturally he wouldn't recommend it. I've talked to other mine rescue people that have breathing problems since then. One thing I realized when I started going to West Virginia University, they could not believe that people would go back inside of a mine and not at least have a respirator on. They assumed everybody wore their went under air till I explained to them, you know, you have to preserve your oxygen. Okay, so think about a massive explosion going through this mine with miles and miles of rubber from belts, tools, machinery, wire, and coal actively on fire as mine rescue teams enter the mine. Now, as Bill described, the rescuers will hold on using their apparatus until a certain point in the mine when they feel they must use it. Now, think about riding through all of this thick poison, essentially, in the air day in and day out for months not only during the rescue mission, but the investigation as well. In mine rescue, historically, you go in, you do an investigation of the destruction, try to rescue people if you have people missing, recover bodies, whatever the case might be. But there's not a lot of studies done on the atmosphere after an explosion. But you have intense heat that comes in contact with a lot of sealants, 
and it puts some ugly stuff out there. And when the mine rescue guys go in or the investigators, they're trudging through that day in and day out, this black soot, and it's in suspension and people's breathing it. It's changed my life. Physically, I can't do anything anymore without struggling for air. And I'm not complaining. I feel very fortunate to be able to do what I do. To your knowledge, have they made adjustments over the past 10 years? They have not. I think it fell on deaf ears. It's been recommended. We recommended it in our report. When the mine rescue guys go in, in all honesty, or the investigators, they probably should have a rest. There's respirators made that help protect against some of those particulates. If something were to happen tomorrow, I think they'll operate the same way they did at Upper Big Branch. What would be the issue? Would it be money? I mean, I wouldn't think it would be. That's not an expensive ticket item to be able to maintain those. I think part of it is, uh, well, apparently the people in charge didn't believe me that my problem was caused by that or they wouldn't have protested my, they, I think they felt like I was just out to get a, get a check. It needs to really be looked at to where that they wear some type of respirator when they're not under air. Now, I've really looked into this and tried to find documentation on the process to see if it's been legislated that respirators are required, and it doesn't seem to be. The only documentation I've found online really even mentioning something relative to this is a mine rescue training education PDF from MSHA, the Mine Safety and Health Administration, referring to deploying mine rescue teams into the mine. It says, when a backup team prepares to enter an irrespirable atmosphere, each member should have an apparatus on their back, oxygen and face piece off, communications ready, and gas detecting instruments ready for use. No mention of a respirator or anything that I could find. So currently these mine rescue teams are entering the mines still no respirator or anything into these dangerous and poisonous environments and who knows the ripple effects that this has caused throughout the years but i was surprised to learn that this hasn't changed bill's right i think it's very important that we put ourselves in the boots of these rescuers so we will know exactly what they go through every time they enter these mines because i don't think we can actually picture the exact disastrous environment that they're entering A total of 38 mine rescue teams from 12 organizations arrived one after another ready to do their part to help. These teams are trained under harsh conditions all year, with competitions held for mine rescue teams across the nation to show up, give their all, and see where they rank. Not only do these coal miners have a sense of pride about their positions, they are necessary due to the amount of danger that's constantly present in any coal mine at any time. This is day one of sleeping bags on rock floors, anxious men and women ready to help, and unanswered questions as families wait in agony only a few miles away. Meanwhile, the media is being placed at a completely different location away from the families. Vicki Smith was a reporter for the Associated Press during the time of the explosion. It took me about four hours to get there. I got there in the dark, in the pouring rain. The challenge was just to get there as quickly as I could. Hours make a lot of difference in a story like that. And by the time I got there, there were a lot of, lot more people there than I would have preferred. Um, but, it, you know, it was a huge, a huge story already. And people were coming in from all over the East Coast to cover that story. How many people were there? 
When I walked into the elementary school, there had to be close to 100 people in the school. That would include law enforcement, politicians, sheriff's deputies, company representatives. There were a lot of people and, of course, journalists. So there were a lot of people there. And our top story tonight on 5 News at 6 o'clock, a Raleigh County community is in mourning tonight after yesterday's devastating coal mining explosion there that sent shockwaves really all around the country. Leslie Rubin is in Raleigh County tonight. She's been following the story all day down there and she has the latest. Scott, the usually quiet and small town of Montcole in Raleigh County has literally been flipped on its top tonight. So how has it changed since you start? Has it changed any since you started to the current environment? Yes, especially in the last four years, I think you could say just the vivitrol and the hate against the media has really grown. Leslie Rubin, the current news director for WCHS in West Virginia, was five years into being a reporter during the time of the tragedy. I used to really, you know, be proud to say out loud and in groups and to, you know, different people that I was a reporter. I was I considered myself a journalist, you know, um, now we're the media. And as soon as you hear that term, it's kind of like people automatically look at you as a vulture, a monster, or you're perpetuating some fake news. That's kind of what we're deemed now. So it's changed a lot because when I first started, I would have never thought that people would look down on the media as much as they do now. I would have never thought that. I think that local news is probably the most trusted news when it comes down to it. But we all get lumped together. And that's kind of what makes it difficult because people can't see the difference between a local news reporter who's lived here their entire lives, who's living in their communities, telling those stories of the people, you know, their neighbors, their friends, their family. And then the people, you know, sitting in New York City or Atlanta or wherever they may be, the stories are much different and they're being told in different ways. And local news, especially here, that's not what we're doing. We're not sitting down at our morning and afternoon meetings and figuring out a way to spin things. We're just out to find the truth, tell people the facts and let people make their own decisions. So uh, how many days ultimately did you end up staying there? The explosion happened on Monday. It was the Monday after Easter, and I was there until they announced that nobody had been found alive, and that was early Saturday morning. So it ended up being about five days. It was so frustrating because they tried so hard to go in. I really thought it was a rescue at the time. Again, it was me being naive and hopeful that they could have found my husband alive. I know that they were talking about drilling a lot and it wasn't safe and then they would pull them out. They'd get so far and then they'd pull them out. And then they'd get so far and then they'd pull them out. And I never would have wanted anything to happen to any of those rescuers, but it was just frustrating. It happened on a Monday. They told us that they were all found on Friday. They called me at 6 a.m. on Sunday morning and said that they had finally got my husband's body recovered. Well, come Monday, it'd been a week. I couldn't have an open casket. He loved cherry wood. He wanted a wood casket, nice big wooden casket. I couldn't have that. I couldn't do anything he wanted because his body had already started deteriorating because it'd been so long. And I couldn't have the funeral until that Wednesday, because they had to do the autopsy. I had to get the reports back, and it just was a process. Almost 10 days before I could lay him to rest. 
And the church we got married in was Methodist Temple over in Beckley. Rick and I got married there, and I decided I got married here. I'm having his funeral here. And it's a good thing I did because we had over 500 people come to his funeral. I was on my feet for four hours that night. It was worth every penny, every pain, every emotion, because I had a big picture of Rick sitting beside his casket. A couple of our friends had a coal miner emblem put on top. I had to have stainless steel because they told me that he'd been underground so long. And But I was having my husband's funeral. I was having his memory honored. I think about this. They wouldn't let me see Rick. And that's kind of haunted me this whole time because you never know. I want to know for sure, and I couldn't know for sure. Dan Calfee was our guy at the funeral home, and he told me absolutely not because he knew me. He knew my family, and he didn't want me to go and keep that hurt with me longer for the rest of my life because it was so devastating. So uh, that, to me, was probably the biggest frustration was I couldn't have that closure, you know, just the crushing blow of no, 29, 29 dead. In shared grief, when the full scope of the devastation hit us, as the rescuers didn't find any more survivors, we prayed together before and after each briefing. We beside the Pledge of Allegiance, we held each other and cried together. Restaurant owners donated food. In those days, the unbreakable bonds of family became very clear. We briefed the families every two hours. It was a cycle that we received a briefing from our authorities, then we went and briefed the families, then we told the media. And it was a cycle we continued until the fate of all of our minors were known. Now I'm going to go back into David McAteer's report of the Upper Big Branch Mine Disaster and his synopsis of key events. I'm going to go from where we left off last episode up until where we are now. The announcement of no survivors to the public. At 5.30 p.m. on April 5th, the West Virginia Office of Miners Health Safety and Training issues a control order. MSHA Administrator Kevin Strickland arrives at the mine while family members begin gathering at the Marsh Fork Safety Building and the press assembles at the Marsh Fork Elementary School. Mine rescue teams advance from the Fresh Air Base to the 78 break. Blanchard and Whitehead report encountering high carbon monoxide levels on the tail side of the long wall and seeing victims on the long wall track, later identified as Corey Davis, Timmy Davis, Adam Morgan, and Joshua Knapper. 8 p.m. that Monday, officials conduct the first briefing for the miners' families. Massey Energy issues a news release reporting seven dead and 19 unaccounted for. Mine rescue personnel underground appear to include two teams from West Virginia Miners Health Safety and Training, members of two of the International Coal Group's teams, members of the Southern Community and Technical Colleges Task Force 1, Massey Energy Southern West Virginia teams, East Kentucky and Knox Creek teams, and MSHA's Jerry Cook, Fred Wills, and Mike Hicks. A victim was found at the conveyor belt head drive who was later identified as Mike Ellswick. At 10.30 p.m., some mine rescuers proceed toward the long wall and others toward Headgate 22. The next victim found at the long wall stage loader was later identified as Rex Mullins. Families are told there are five more deceased but unnamed miners. At 11.30 p.m., one mine rescue team moves across the long wall face and finds six more victims, later identified as Christopher Bell, Richard Lane, Dillard Persinger, Joel Price, Gary Quarles, and Grover Skeens. Another team finds six victims on Headgate 22, 
later identified as Kenneth Chapman, William Griffith, Ronald Maynor, James Mooney, Boone Payne, and Ricky Workman. The team on the Headgate 22 section reports their gas detectors are over the range for carbon monoxide and methane. The command center orders the teams to exit the mine. The bodies of the 18 victims have been located, but not removed from the mine. Four miners, later identified as Gregory Brock, Dean Jones, Joe Markham, and Nicholas McCroskey, have not yet been located. Now into Tuesday, Chris Atkins announces to the family members that there are 24 deceased miners and four miners who have not yet been located. He indicates that he did not hold out much hope for the four missing men. At 2.30 a.m., all mine rescue team members exit the mine along with Chris Blanchard and Jason Whitehead. Governor Manchin and Congressman Ray Hall speak to the families and indicate there are 25 deceased miners and four missing men. Not much left for Tuesday other than a rescue plan calling for drilling of three boreholes near Headgate 22 section. The monitoring of gases continue throughout the day. Now into Wednesday, the monitoring of gases continue throughout the day and briefings for families are conducted at various times by Governor Manchin, Congressman Nick Ray Hall, MSHA's Kevin Strickland, West Virginia Office of Miners Health Safety and Training, Ron Wooten, Massey Energy's Don Blankenship, and Chris Atkins. Into Thursday, briefings for families are conducted throughout the day. A rescue plan is modified to resume exploration to locate the four remaining miners and to recover the victims found previously. Four mine rescue teams enter the mine. By 9.30 a.m., the gas readings at the borehole show explosive levels and the rescue teams are withdrawn. On Friday, April 9th, funeral services begin for for the seven miners from the Tailgate 22 crew. At 12.30 a.m., two mine rescue teams enter the mine and later detect elevated carbon monoxide levels in smoke. They are ordered to exit the mine at 5 a.m. At 4 p.m., two rescue teams enter the mine while nitrogen continues to be injected into the mine through a borehole. Then two additional teams enter the mine at 7 p.m. At 10 p.m., mine rescue teams on the Headgate 22 section find remaining victims, later identified as Gregory Brock, Dean Jones, and Joe Markham. A mine rescue team on the Longwall section finds the final victim, later identified as Nicholas McCroskey. At 11.35 p.m., Don Blankenship, Chris Atkins, Governor Manchin, Imsha's Joe Main, and Kevin Strickland provide the final briefing for the families. Chris Atkins announces that the entire mine has been explored, all the miners have been accounted for, and there are no survivors. Now on Saturday, April 10th, 2010, plans are being developed to recover the bodies of the remaining 22 victims while examining the mine for dangerous conditions that could put the recovery team's lives at risk. Our rehab tent turned into the community center, per se. Uh, you'd have mine rescuers from all across. The, the. I think Salt Lake City, Utah was the furthest I spoke to somebody come in on maybe one of the federal teams. And there was mine rescuers from all over there. We would just have conversation. And it seemed like throughout the night is when everybody wanted to open up. Uh, there wasn't nothing to do during the day. Uh, there wasn't none of that busy work. So throughout the night, people wanted to talk. I'll never forget this one kid. Young man, very young man, new to the mining industry, new mine rescuers on one of the compliance teams. He came over and it was probably 2.30 in the morning. We were sitting there and he smacked a egg on in, come in and just sit down and started talking. He said, I don't know what I'm going to do when we go recover. And I said, wait, what do you mean, buddy? And uh, he said, I never, never saw that body. He said, the only 
person I've ever been around that died was at my grandma's funeral. He said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, well, I know what you're not going to do. We're not going to, we're not going to put you under there because they, they didn't need this. And he, I get it. He, he was there because he had a job to do, but he, he just wasn't ready to tell them other guys that he just wasn't ready to do that. Um, so uh, I don't know, I know some of the representatives from his team. So I went and talked to him. It's like, he's not ready. And, uh, you know, there's other uses for people in instance like that. So, uh, the last thing we wanted to do is them to send him under. If I withheld that and they sent him under and he would have just had an emotional breakdown seeing that, uh, that's the last thing they needed. The minor rescuers needed. So, you know, it was just a lot of conversation like that. A lot of people would just miss their families. They just wanted to talk, you know, and, uh, you know, most of these rural communities in West Virginia, the, the local EMS system is the, the local doctor, the local counselor, the local taxi service, all of the above. So, and that's really what we was doing there was the, the local counselor or, or whatever. So we was just bonding with those, uh, those minor rescuers and, and building that and just hearing them out, just hear them out, give them an ear. Everybody's got a breaking point. Some of the guys was really, as the days progressed, that nervous energy that nothing was getting done was just compounding up until they found the, the final four. And when they found the final four and the governor did his press release and they found them and it's not the results that everyone wished for. And that's when we had started making plans of the, the removal of the victims. Kind of explain to me how you got the bodies out. What we did the last night underground, as far as the mine rescue part went on recovering the bodies, we had a crew of men that was on that section that had not been recovered. That happened during the day of April the 12th and up until the morning of April the 13th. Once we got those guys ready to bring out of the mine, we formed basically a human chain of mine rescuers. There was 140-some guys underground, and we wanted to show the victims the utmost respect. And once we spread out, it was over a mile and a half from where we carried them down to where we actually put them on a man trip, and then they were brought outside. They would carry them on the stretcher down so far, and then they'd hand them off to another crew, another group of men. Then they would carry them down so far and they'd hand them off. Their stretchers never touched the ground once they started. I'm really thankful for the guys that coordinated that and set that up that we were able to do that. Once we did get the last one carried down, then we started coming out. Everybody was walking down. Outside, there was a process once the bodies came outside that they went through before they actually were put in the ambulance and they left. And we stood underground there to drift mouth up until the last body was processed and left before any of us came out of the mine. That was all the mine rescue guys. Like I say, it was just a respect thing. What was that like inside there when that was happening? Well, it's a very solemn feeling, you know. As a rescuer, we were thankful that we were able to find everybody and to bring them out to their families. So we were we were thankful for that, but it's hard to describe. It's it's a it's an awful feeling. Very little talking. Yeah, we were just we were just waiting and it was you know, there was no horseplay, no cutting up. It was it was just a a respectful time. When you 
become a miner and you've experienced the tough conditions, the tough times, the near misses, you gain respect for the people in there that's doing the same thing. As far as the bond that you have, you actually end up spending more awake hours with your coworkers than you do your family. When you figure by the time you go home, have dinner or breakfast, whichever, depends what shift you're on, I guess, and spend a few hours up, you go to bed, you, you get up the next day and you go do the same thing. But you spend a lot of time with those men and you become very close. Some of my best friends are people that I used to work with. And if you are a coal miner and the toughness and the, the things that you go through and the, the hard times as far as being able to do the job and when somebody's right next to you doing the same thing, you just, you, you learn, you gain a lot of respect for them. Our job was to go in and they give us a specific location to go to and line up. And each, each team has like, you know, five or six members. Dwight McClure, who was working for the West Virginia Office of Miners Health, Safety and Training during the time of the explosion, was also a member of the state's mine rescue team. He is now retired. And then they were going to bag the bodies up there. And once they bagged them, they were going to carry them, you know, like on stretchers. I can't tell you how foreign that was, but it was a, yeah, it was a good mile back to the mansions. The bodies never touched the ground. It was handed over to one team. One team carried them several breaks, two or three breaks, handed over to another team. They would carry them on and on until they got to the man trips on the track where they could load them up. But the thing about it is when they send us back in there to do that. Now, J.D., you think about the smell. I don't care if they're in the body bag or not. It's a terrible smell. They never gave us any anything to put over our face. State or federal government never provided anything. And they they never provided anything because they I was there another month and a half after this, recovering the mines, going in there and investigating, mapping. The dust, what I was telling you is the dust was an inch or two thick, sucked on the ground floor with everything. And when you walked, it stirred all of that up. But we never had any face protection. And, and you take 50 guys walking up through there, you know, it's a lot of dust to swallow. It's not just coal dust. It's everything that burned up in that month. Since this is the second time I've heard accounts of this, of not having breathing protection, I wanted to make sure and be as thorough as possible. So I reached out to a person I know who is actually on a mine rescue team actively, and he basically said it depends on the situation. And they usually decide when to don their apparatus pertaining to the oxygen and carbon monoxide levels in the mine. So it's really a case-by-case call. I'm still digging in to try and find more information on this, but so far the only reference I've found involving something like this is from that MSHA document I referenced earlier. I'll also source that document at the end of this episode. Now also, that document kind of leaves it open to interpretation. 
Again, it says when a backup team prepares to enter an irrespirable atmosphere, each member should have an apparatus on their back, oxygen and face piece off, communications ready, and the gas detecting instruments ready for use. It's in a key points to remember section and it's like a checkbox next to it. So really they could just be saying when you're preparing to enter the mine, this is what you should do. But I'm still not finding an exact source saying this is when you put your face piece on. And I did find some information finally explaining what is known as barefaced exploration. It's from an IMSHA document entitled Mine Rescue Team Training, Metal and Non-Metal Mines. It states, in some disaster situations, conditions may make it possible to conduct an initial exploration without self-contained breathing apparatus. This is known as barefaced exploration. Often barefaced exploration is conducted with apparatus on team members ready to function. This allows the team to quickly put on their face pieces and get under oxygen if conditions make it necessary. And there is no exact definition of when that's necessary. My contact says that depends on the oxygen and carbon monoxide levels in the mine as you go so you can conserve your four hours of oxygen in your apparatus. Hello. Hey, is this Chris? Uh, yes, it is. Hey, Chris, this is J.D. Belcher. How are you? Next, you'll hear a description of what the environment was like from Chris Stewart. He was a member of the Mountaineer Mine Rescue Team, which was kind of a contractor for mine disasters. As you're riding the track up and you're looking out the portal, that portal keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and then you, you take a turn in the track and that portal goes away. That's when it dawned on me, like, you know, well, shit, this is real now. Right. Because, you know, okay, do I say stop the man trip and get off and let me out, you know, or whatever? And I thought, no, we, we got a job to do. We got, we got to do this. Coming up the track, just every shade of a million different shades of grayish black that you can imagine just from the blast. And finally, when you get to the end of the track where we were, you know, we had to get out, walk, carry our supplies up. And we walk up through the track and just utter complete and total devastation. The track looked like, I describe it as like a bread tie, that when you take a, that little tie off a loaf of bread and you twist it around and throw it down, that, that was the track going up through there. The thing that, oh my God, amazed me the most was the the shadow blast on the sides of the ribs, like a nuclear explosion, how the blast will like embed shadows of, uh, there. I think there's still people like Hiroshima that are shadows of their figures still on walls there. And it was variations of that tucked away on, on the side of the breakthroughs where the power centers were. And you could see the shadow of, of, the, of the, the blast. And I just thought, yeah, that, that's, that's just amazing. Walking up through there, communication wire, it's the black and white wire that's twisted up and they run it as a phone line under wire. Yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. But triple J hook hangers hanging on the roof, and that's where the communication wire was. And I remember walking over and looking, and I thought, man, that wire's, wire's stripped. Like somebody took and you know just took a knife and just stripped the black and the white off of it. And I looked back at another hanger, and that plastic is wadded up against the, the hook. And I thought, Jesus Christ, this, this is an this is a, a atomic blast. Right. If that explosion was that powerful enough to strip wire, mm -hmm. to grab a piece of that wire and start pulling it off of the, of the cable, I said, man, those guys didn't have a chance. Yeah. And it was really, really heartbreaking and really, really, you know, and you start seeing things, the, uh, the, uh, 
lifeline that we were required to have underground, you know, to, on the, on the uh, secondary and primary escapeways. A lifeline is basically a heavily reinforced, highly illuminated cable that in the event of a disaster, surviving coal miners can grab this line and follow it to safety, basically. When you see all that laying around everywhere, all, you know, it was the metal with the green, uh, neon green coating. When you see all that laying around everywhere and none of it was there, none of it, none of it survived the blast. And I thought, you know, my, you know, even if they did, how could they have got out? Air cylinders laying everywhere. Walked over and took my finger and wiped it off, the soot off of it. And I said, the hell, these are yellow. These are the bottles that are supposed to be in the rescue chamber. You know, and then, then of course, that hit me too. I thought, man, it, it blew these rescue chambers to pieces. And the further we get, the more devastation. I mean, you know, just from the, the, the like I said, the magnitude of the explosion that you know, no, nobody survived it. Pretty somber feeling to when you're looking in by and you start seeing lights coming towards you and you, you know it's, 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 you know, a team, you know, bringing you a body to carry down. So many emotions of anxiety, anger, sadness, and frustration accompanied every press conference, and now they're over. The somberness never left, the cries never stopped, and the reality that all 29 miners have officially lost their lives is now settling in. Dozens and dozens of family members along with friends are attending funerals while planning the services for the remaining coal miners who were finally brought out of the mine by the human chain of devastated rescuers. People lost their husbands, grandfathers, brothers, sons, best friends, head coaches, pastors, volunteers, partners, co-parents, all gone with one blast. So many personal experiences, hundreds and probably even thousands of lives affected, and I wish I could include them all. Families were hurting and still are today. Tommy Davis, who worked a separate shift at UBB, lost three in the tragedy. These are his words years later at the trial of Don Blankenship, who was CEO of Massey Energy on April 5th, 2010. I lost three there that day. Who were they again? Charles Kennedy Davis. That was my only brother. My go-to guy, my son, Corey Thomas, which was only 20, the youngest one out of all of them, and my son, Joshua, or my nephew, Joshua, from Ohio. I was talking to my other my other nephew at the man trip station when it all went down. And this man has no remorse at all. Tommy, no what were some of the things that you were yelling as he was speaking? We couldn't I really him know who I was because out of six years, he never approached none of us. He never told us he was sorry for what happened. And he knows he could have done the right thing. All he had to do was make one of them 40 phone calls a day. He called checking on production and say, shut it down and fix everything. But he refused to do it. We can see you're kind of shaking right now. What's going through you? It's just too much to say. I, I miss my family. He hugged his, and all he gets is a year. And she done great. She gave him what she could give him. But they need to be stricter, more harsh penalties for people like that who puts greed and money over human life. What did you think when he went up in the court and said that he, he apologized to you guys? It was it. It mean nothing. It didn't mean nothing, and it still won't mean nothing, because like I told him standing right there when he looked at me, he never come to me in six years, never come to me, never come to my mom, my dad. It's gone now. They grieved herself to death. He never come and apologized to none of us. He never said nothing. Would it have mattered if he did? Would it have changed her opinion no. on him? He's still, he's still who he is. Where does this frustration come from for you? If you was where I was that day, and you seen my son after laying in there for five days, and seen what he looked like, if you worked on them men like we did when they come outside, and you smelled them, and you looked at them, 
Then you know where I come from. You know what's here. Not much. Tommy, you worked there as well, right? Yes. You, were you there that day? Yes, I was. I was in at the man trip station trying to early out. But I got to feel only a little bit what a whole lot of these men felt a whole lot of. And that man has no remorse for human life at all. Just the pain that these families are still left with. I think of people like Tommy Davis, who lost his brother, his son, and his nephew. And he was there, too. He was on his way out. He knows it could have been him, too. And just the magnitude of that loss, I want to make sure that people never forget who these families are, who was really impacted in this whole disaster that unfolded. The only thing I can remember is me collapsing, my son and John Richmond catching me, and David, and just losing it. I just couldn't believe it was real. I was trying not to cry. No, you're fine. You're fine. But that's when it all started. And of course, you know, they had all the protesters down there, and that was a big whole mess. Yes, protesters. You heard that correctly. The Westboro Baptist Church is a group from Kansas who has protested many events in the past few decades to create enough controversy to spread their message. For instance, Fred Phelps, the group's leader, blames 9-11 occurring due to the acceptance of homosexuality. According to the group, America has damned itself because of this. Their protests contain verbiage like, God sent the shooter, and thank God for dead soldiers, even protesting fallen soldiers' funerals who lost their lives in Afghanistan. The church released a statement before arriving in West Virginia that said, so God reached down and smacked one of those mines, killing 25, and likely four more are dead. Now you moan and wallow in self-pity and pour over the details of the dead rebels' lives, pretending they are heroes. Now I hesitated to include this within the podcast because it's deplorable and disgusting that someone would even think of it. But to set the scope of the environment these families were enduring that week, I feel it is important for you to hear. It was not good. They were taken care of, and hopefully they will never come around. The state troopers were amazing. West Virginia state troopers were so amazing. They made sure that we were all safe and protected so we didn't have any trouble. I just feel like I've never got a concrete answer. I just want to know the truth. But there's so many different sides. How do I know what the truth is? I don't know the truth. If someday someone will say, this is exactly what happened, then I think I can maybe live with that. The Massey energy side, there's the MSHA side, and then there's the investigation. So who do you believe? I don't know. That was April the 13th. After that, the director had asked me about heading up the investigation for the state and being the lead investigator, and I ended up accepting that and doing that, we did all that was humanly possible to give a complete and thorough investigation. But there was a point in time that MSHA was done, and the state was not. The investigation that followed would take years to complete. There were several reports filed, including ones from the West Virginia Office of Miners Health Safety and Training, the Mine Safety and Health Administration, an independent investigation panel hired by Governor Manchin and led by David McAteer, the United Mine Workers Association, who called this disaster industrial homicide, also conducted their own internal investigation. Massey Energy, the owner of Performance Coal, who ran the Upper Big Branch Mine during the time of the tragedy, released a report as well. Join us for Chapter 2, 
The Investigation, where we break down all the facts from these different reports and try to bring all sides to the story so you can make your own decision in regards to what happened. Now I'm going to read off the final 22 names and a brief synopsis of who these men were as referenced on ubbminersmemorial.com. This order is also how they are identified on the West Virginia Office of Miners Health Safety and Training Investigative Report. This again will be followed by a 29-second moment of silence. The first victim is Michael L. Ellswick, underground beltman fireboss. He was 56. He was a resident of Elkview and was a dedicated coal miner for 36 years. He was a member of the Dunbar First Church of God. Family members described him as a rock. When things fell apart, he was there, his daughter said. He is survived by his wife, Bobby, son, Jeremy, and daughter, Jamie Cash. The second victim is Adam Keith Morgan, apprentice. He was 21. He lived in Pineville and ward number 24 on the Wyoming East High School football team that went to the state class AA playoffs during his senior season of 2006. He enjoyed hunting, fishing, four-wheeler riding, grilling, and being outdoors. He is survived by his parents, Steve and Tammy Church Morgan. The third victim is Corey Thomas Davis, apprentice. He was 20. Residing in Cabin Creek, he played baseball in high school and followed his family members into the mines. He loved the outdoors, often spending weekends at a family camp on a mountaintop, hunting, fishing, and putting his truck in the mud. He is survived by his parents, Tommy and Cindy Davis. The fourth victim is Joshua Scott Knapper, apprentice. He was 25. He's from Salem Center, Ohio, was a nurse and an avid bodybuilder who loved the outdoors, camping, dancing, and riding his four-wheeler. He wrote a note to his family members, If anything happens to me, I will be looking down from heaven. He is survived by his daughter, Jenna Lee, fiance, Jennifer Ziegler, and parents, Scott and Pam Knapper. The fifth victim is Charles Timothy Davis, foreman. He was 51. He lived in Eskdale, loved fishing, hunting with his bird dogs, and riding his rhino. His son described him as the best hunter and fisher you have ever seen. He is survived by his wife, Diana, and children, Timmy Davis Jr., Cody Davis, and Misty Don Cooper. The sixth victim is Rex Mullins, headgate operator. He was 50. While residing in Lively, he was an outdoorsman and an ardent West Virginia Mountaineer fan. Survivors include his wife, Brenda, son Jason, daughter Geneva Blake, stepchildren Jeremy Walker, Tessa Walker, and Joseph Walter, and his mother, Joanne Bailey Mullins. The seventh victim is Richard Lane, production foreman. He was 45. He lived in Cool Ridge, loved running coal, and was known for never asking his men to do anything he would not do himself. He was an avid hunter and fisherman and looked forward to retiring to tend to his horses and cattle on his 25-acre farm. He is survived by his wife Kim, son Rob, and grandson Brody Parker Lang. The eighth victim is Grover Dale Skeens, maintenance foreman. He was 57. While living in Montcole, he found religion late in his life and had a strong church involvement. He also was a veteran of the U.S. Marines. Mostly his passion was work, according to his brother-in-law. He started out in the coal mines at an early age. He's been working there for almost 30 years. He is survived by his daughter, Renee Bishop, and a son, Jeff Skeens. The ninth victim is Joel Price, 
Shearer operator. He was 55. His nickname was Jody. He lived in Beckley and was a veteran of the U.S. Navy and a member of the St. John United Holiness Church. He was known for his frequent family barbecues, and his survivors include his wife, Doreen, stepsons, John Jones, Alan Johnson, and Matt Jones. The tenth victim is Gary Wayne Quarles, Shearer operator. He was 33. He resided in Naomi and was a caring father and son who enjoyed spending time with his family, hunting, fishing, and riding four-wheelers. He is survived by his children, Trevor and Rebecca, and his parents, Gary and Patty Quarles. The 11th victim is Christopher Bell, utility person. He was 33. He lived in Crab Orchard and was admired for his ability to draw and detail vehicles. He was the happiest spending time with his wife, Angela, and children, Alexis, Meadow, Christopher, and Skyler. His parents, Christopher and Kathy Darlene Bell, also survive him. The twelfth victim is Dillard Earl Persinger, shield operator. He was 32. His nickname was Dewey. While living in Crab Orchard, he loved being with his family and he enjoyed country music. He is remembered as being dedicated to his family and friends. He leaves behind his wife, Heidi, two sons, James and Devin, and his parents, Delmas and Ada Bolin Persinger. The 13th victim is Nicholas Darrell McCroskey, electrician. He was 26. He lived in Beckley and was described as full of life and sweet, helpful, and kind-hearted by a longtime friend. A graduate of Bluefield State College with an engineering degree, he loved hunting, fishing, water sports, and riding his Harley-Davidson. He is survived by his mother, Debbie Lynn McCroskey. The 14th victim is Ricky Workman shuttle car operator. He was 50. He was a resident of Colcord who had a passion for wheels. He loved his Harley Davidson and in the summer drove miniature race cars. He is survived by his wife Annette, daughters Monica White, Heather Witt, and Chantel Hale, and seven grandchildren. The 15th victim is Howard Payne, roof bolt operator. He was 53. His nickname was Boone and he lived in Cabin Creek, was described as a gentle giant with flaming red hair who would go out of his way to help people. He loved hunting, fishing, and basketball. He is survived by his son Jason, daughter Erica, father Howard Daniel Payne, and fiance Bobby Polly. The 16th victim is Ronald Lee Maynard, scoop operator. He was 31. He resided in Clear Creek and was described as a kind person who was always willing to help anyone who needed him. He enjoyed hunting and took his children fishing, hunting, and for rides on his four-wheeler. Survivors include his wife, Helen, daughter Caitlin, son Hunter, and parents, Nancy Burgess and Ronald Maynard. The 17th victim is James Mooney, shuttle car operator. He was 51. He's from Ashford and loved hunting, fishing, camping, and taking his 1978 Corvette out for a cruise on the weekends. He was a member of the Rumble Community Baptist Church, and is survived by his wife, Sheila, daughter, Misty Case, and son, Austin Mooney. The 18th victim is Kenneth Chapman, roof bolt operator. He was 53. He lived in Fairdale and had the ability to make others laugh. He was somebody that always had a good time, a nephew said. Kenny enjoyed hunting, fishing, and working in his garden. He is survived by his wife, Laura, children, Donna Griffith, Vicki Williams, Kenny Chapman Jr., Michael Austin Chapman, Jason McMillian, Carl Massey, and Jubal McMillian. The 19th victim is William Ildon Griffith, continuous miner operator. He was 54. His nickname was Bob. He's from Glen Rogers and came from a family of miners before entering the mines himself as a young man. When he wasn't working, Bob and his wife, Marlene, worked on their 1967 Camaro. 
Also surviving are a daughter, Deborah Lynn, and a son, William James. The 20th victim is Joe Markham, continuous miner operator. He was 57. He's from Laurel Creek in Lenore and was a coal miner for 35 years and a charter member of the Lenore Volunteer Fire Department. He was a member of the Church of the Living God and was a mainstay in Mingo County politics. His wife, Kathy, and daughters, Kathy Joe Markham and Garnet Murphy, survive him. The 21st victim is Gregory Stephen Brock, electrician. He was 47. While living in Clear Creek, he enjoyed spending time with his son, Greg Kyle Brock, and his fiance Patty Stover, along with her daughters, Shayla and Brooke Stover. He was a NASCAR fan who loved to hunt, fish, and always had a vegetable and flower garden. And the 22nd victim is Edward Dean Jones, production foreman. He was 50. He resided in Beckley and was a hard worker who was devoted to his wife, Gina, and son, Kyle Dean, who has cystic fibrosis. Kyle and Edward were exceptionally close and shared a love for the Pittsburgh Steelers and the West Virginia Mountaineers. Dean's mother, Ruby Nell Lafferty Jones, also survives. Thank you for joining us on this journey through UBB, a coal miner's story. This episode, deeply rooted in the narrative of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster, was narrated by Nora Belcher and me. We extend our sincere appreciation to Eric Robbins and Jordan Waldron, who composed the music to help convey the gravity and emotion of this tragic chapter in mining history. As we continue to explore and understand the multifaceted story of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster, we invite you to listen to all three chapters of our series. It's important to remember that this podcast is a non-profit endeavor crafted with the sole purpose of shedding light on this significant event. All recordings and materials have been utilized under the Fair Use Act for journalism purposes to ensure that the story of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster is told with the depth and respect it deserves. Learn more about this podcast by visiting UpperBigBranch.com. Please be aware that the content and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast producer and do not represent any official stance or viewpoint on any other individual entity. They are provided for informational and educational purposes only. Some sources from documents used in this episode are from the MSHA document, Responding to a Mine Emergency, Training Responsible Persons at Underground Coal Mines. Also, the MSHA, West Virginia State Mining Office, David McAteer, and Appalachia Holdings Incorporated's reports on the Upper Big Branch Mine Disaster. You can find out more information on all the sources used in this production of UBB, A Coal Miner Story on upperbigbranch.com.